Good morning, friends. If we've never had the opportunity to meet, my name is Thomas, and I get to be on staff here at Calvary. It's a joy to be able to open up God's Word with us on the weekends and journey through this series as we're looking in the Gospel of Luke. All that Jesus historically did, taught in his life, death, and resurrection. And in the Gospel of Luke, there is one account that we're going to look at today in which Jesus marvels at something. In fact, there's only two times in the entire Bible where Jesus is said to have marveled at someone. What do you think it takes for Jesus to marvel? Almost be caught off guard to sit down and say, hold on, give me time out. Did you just see what happened? What, what, do you, what have you recently marveled at? What have you been so impressed with that it just kind of stopped your life for a moment? Anything? Something big? Something small? What does it take for the Son of God to marvel? You kind of want to know? All right, let's go to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, Jesus has just finished the teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, kind of giving the the ethical marching orders of the kingdom. What Jesus is here to do, who the kingdom is for, how the kingdom people live in the world. Chapter 7 opens up with these words. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is is different region, not filled with as many Israelites, but more Gentiles. In fact, this is a a way in which Luke says, now Jesus, having finished his teachings, just crossed over to the other side of the tracks. And so on the other side of the tracks is where now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, He marveled at him. He marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. There's only two times in which Jesus marvels at someone. The other instance is actually a Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman, another person outside the faith of the family of God who comes to Jesus by faith and receives him. 
What is it that Jesus marvels at here with this centurion? I think there are several things that we can see from this story that apply to us. The first is this. The centurion is a person outside the family of God. A centurion is a soldier of middle rank in the Roman army. So right off the bat, you have a ethnic line that divides the people of God in this centurion. There's an ethnic line that says, well, he's, he's a Roman citizen and he occupies a, a place in society that we would never value. He's a centurion, which means he's in charge of a hundred century, a centurion. He's in charge of a hundred soldiers under him. And the centurions were known as the backbone of the Roman army. They were the ones that gave the marching orders. They're the ones that trained the soldiers. They were the ones on the front lines of battle. So this centurion is someone who isn't aware of anything of the, of the Jewish faith, but yet he has some sympathies to them. Perhaps it's a political persuasion in which he says it's good for people to have religious freedom. Not sure. But he actually participated in this local town's building of the synagogue. He, he financially supported the building of a local synagogue so that people of God could worship, which means he's a man of significant wealth. That's another dividing line is, well, now you have not only ethnic boundaries, but you have socioeconomic boundaries. This is person is someone who has a lot of resources. We've been seeing in the gospel of Luke that Jesus is often drawing near to the poor, the downcast and out. I mean, will Jesus cross an economic line and care even about the wealthy? And not only is he a centurion, which is an ethnic line and a social line of an economic line, but he has a religious line. He's not a believer yet. He may have some sympathies, but he's still a centurion. He probably has idols in his home. He probably still eats unclean foods, which separates him socially from the Jewish faith. So Jews wouldn't go into his house. Otherwise, they might become unclean. And so there are all these boundaries that would keep someone of the Jewish faith from going to him. And so that's why when the centurion sends elders, representatives from the Jewish faith to Jesus, they're trying to convince Jesus. Jesus is a practicing holy rabbi, trying to convince Jesus to do something that maybe they think he wouldn't normally do because there's too many boundaries that have to be crossed. And so they're trying to convince Jesus he's actually worthy for Jesus to do this for him. They're trying to prop him up. He's not like the average centurion that you heard about. They're terrible. But this one, this one, Jesus, this one is worthy of you to pour grace into his life. They're trying to prop him up and show Jesus that he's deserving enough of his attention. And so Jesus responds and he goes to the centurion's house, crossing all of these boundaries. You're going to see that truly the good news is for all people. We've been saying that. Good news for all people. And we've been looking at how the good news comes to the downtrodden, those in the socioeconomic class that are low. And here we see that the good news crosses ethnic, social, religious, economic boundaries, because it truly is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for all people. And you know what's really interesting about that word all? It means all, like everyone. It's for everyone who would receive it. And so here's Jesus turning towards the centurion's home to go to him. 
Now, the elders who know this man, probably in his public figure, in his public posture, say, he's worthy, he's worthy. Well, who comes out from the centurion's house? Are his friends, do you see that? But his friends come out. And what do his friends tell Jesus? What would your friends tell Jesus? Is not worthy. Is not worthy. He, he sent his friends. It's interesting to me that his friends are going to be Gentiles and the Jews are there trying to convince him how worthy he is, trying to convince Jesus how worthy he is. But his friends go out. He sends his friends go, well, you maybe know who I am privately. Go tell Jesus that I know who I really am. I'm not worthy. So the friends go out to tell Jesus, he's not worthy. He's not worthy for you to enter his home. And this shows the man's humility. Humility is a prerequisite of faith. This is why Jesus says, blessed are the poor for theirs will be the kingdom of God. Materially poor only? No, it's those who understand their truest poverty, their spiritual poverty. And those of us who experience material poverty are often more aware of our need in our spiritual poverty. But if you show them it has to be truly spiritual, spiritually poor to recognize their need, that's humility. The centurion recognizes his need. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Now, this is, this is pretty wild to me because it's not Jesus in his exaltation yet. This is still Jesus of Nazareth living and operating in what we call of Christ's humility, which means Jesus is homeless. He has no home. He has no big house that he's coming from. Jesus is a carpenter, socioeconomic low status in society. His garments are probably more worn out than the centurions. And here's a centurion. This is someone of significant importance in society who has wealth, who has means. And he looks at this homeless carpenter and says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. That'd be like someone from the front range of Colorado in a large 3,000 to 6,000 square foot home, looking at someone who's homeless. And instead of thinking, oh, I could benefit you come into my house, recognizing your own poverty and saying, oh, I'm, I couldn't possibly host you. I'm not worthy. That's the outward appearance of what everyone is seeing right now. Is I'm not worthy. The centurion who occupies political power, who has wealth, who's doing just fine, says to this poor Jewish carpenter, you can't come into my home. You have greater worth than I do. That's his posture of humility. And this is then when the conversation reveals his faith, this is what he says. He says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority. And then he begins to describe how he sees Jesus. He says, okay, this whole thing is a question of authority. I have a sick, suffering servant that I can do nothing for. And I'm a man who lives under authority as a Roman soldier. I'm under authority. If someone above me gives me orders, I have no other option but to obey them. And I'm also a person who is in a place of authority, that I have other soldiers underneath me that if I give them a command, 
They have no other option but to obey me. And so I'm under authority. I'm over people with authority. I understand authority. And probably in the first century, no one understands authority better than a Roman soldier. What's so amazing is that he is recognizing Jesus as the one who has authority. Do you see that? See, he doesn't come to Jesus like, okay, I know you're a miracle worker or you're a great physician or somehow you're able to bring healings that I'm not sure how that works. The centurion is saying, I understand how this works. This disease that's in my servant is a material world issue and it has to obey you. Jesus, you are the authority over all of life. That if you say the word disease be gone, the disease has no other option than to obey you. The material world has to submit to your authority. What the centurion recognizes in Jesus is not that he's just a prophet or a miracle worker or an unusual healer, but that Jesus is the authority of life. And Jesus hasn't revealed that yet. Like nothing about Jesus would say that person sits in the position of authority because he's in his state of humility right now. People in positions of authority, what do they look like? How about about you in your life? When, When you see people of authority, what kind of positions do they hold? High positions. What do they dress like? What do they talk like? How about the people around them? How do they... How are they treated? Well, they're treated really well. They are served. They occupy the nicest places at the table. They have the nicest cars. They have the nicest outfits. Does Jesus have any of that? No. He's not displaying his authority right now. In fact, he says, I I didn't come to, to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. I'm here in a servant's posture. And so what Jesus is marveling at, is that this centurion recognizes the authority of Jesus without seeing the social economic clues of people who hold positions of authority. And Jesus marvels. He says, he says this, I love this. I tell you the truth, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now, has there been some really good examples of faith in Israel? Yeah! Let's start with the beginning of Luke. How about his mom? Like that took some faith. This is Mary has great faith. How about John the Baptist to prepare the way? That was some faith. How about the faith he just saw with fellow friends who brought their para- paralyzed friend, cut a hole in the roof so they could be in the front of Jesus to be healed. He says, wow, this is some faith. And here he's, he, he looks at the centurion and says, man, even, even these great examples of faith that I've seen, even in my own family, is nothing like. It's nothing like what this centurion understands. What does the centurion understand? Is that Jesus has the authority and he hasn't revealed that yet. The centurion understands who Jesus is. And this is what will later be revealed to us is that Jesus truly is the son of God from the story, that he is the one who truly has authority. Here's the end of Matthew. After Jesus' resurrection, He gathers his disciples 
And this is what he tells his disciples. Now it's fully revealed to his disciples and anyone here today. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does all mean? It means all. Like really everything. Everything everywhere. In the heavens and on earth. The entire cosmos. The existence of everything that a telescope sees into outer space, to the microscope on our planet, everything is under the authority of Jesus. All authority is under Jesus. This is what we see as Jesus' exaltation in his ascension, which you know, we as a church don't even like celebrate that often. We celebrate Easter, the resurrection, and then we give little time to the ascension. The ascension is Jesus returning to his rightful place, the right hand of the Father, which is what the, the position of authority. When, when Stephen is stoned, he sees heaven, he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. That's where Jesus sits today, in the place of power and authority. This is what Peter says. This is 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All authority in all systems, in all places, are under Jesus today. And this centurion, before it is fully revealed, recognizes it that this Jesus has the authority, like I have the authority to tell a fellow soldier to go, and he goes, Jesus has the authority to tell the disease in my servant to leave, and it has no other option than to obey. Now, that's part of what Jesus marvels at, is that the centurion recognizes that Jesus has the authority. Here's the second piece of this faith. Back to Luke is that the centurion wants the authority of Jesus. And not everybody does. The centurion wants the authority of Jesus to come into his life. The centurion wants to live under the authority of Jesus in his life. And so he says, just say the word and let my servant be healed. Jesus, I recognize that you are a person of authority and I want that authority in my life. I want it operational in my life. See, there's there's people who recognize the authority of Jesus. We're gonna see this next week with the demons. But this centurion says, I recognize who you are and I want that authority to be exercised in my life. I want, you to, I want you to have your way with me as I am a person of authority with soldiers. I want you to be my authority. I want you to speak into my life. Let me ask this question right now before we move on. Do you recognize that Jesus has that authority? That's who Jesus is. Not just a good prophet, not a helpful teacher, but the authority over heaven and earth. That's who he is. And then here's another question. Do do you want that authority in your life? Do you want him to exercise that authority in your marriage, in your finances, in your identity, in your future, in your dreams, in your hopes? 
Do you want him to be the authority of your life? See, this in turn is saying, I, I, I know who you are and I want you to come into my home. Now, how does Jesus exercise his authority? Does he come in like, kick the disease out of the man? Does he even touch the man? No, Jesus' full authority is on display here because what is the instrument of his authority? His word. Just say the word. You just speak Jesus and the disease has to leave. You see, when you open up the scriptures, it is the word of God that has the authority. So you open the very first page of your Bible is Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and the spirit was over the surface of the deep. And God, what? Spoke. God said, let there be light. And with authority, he creates. And when Jesus shows up, is with his authority that he heals. And then you get to the end of the Bible here in Revelation and Jesus comes as one riding on a white horse to bring justice and destroy evil. And how does he do it? By the word of his mouth. It says there's like a sword coming out of his mouth. The sword is the word of God. He's going to bring justice and destroy evil by his word. So what is the instrument of Jesus' authority? His word. So what, what do you hold here? Like, what is this? The word of God. What do we just give a bunch of third graders? The word of God. Is this just a, a book of tips and tricks? Of helpful insights and stories? No, this is the authority of God. And so when we come here, we open up the word, we're opening up the authority of God. And all those who recognize who Jesus is, recognize that these are his words. And these, are, these are really are just words, but they're the words of God. God is the ultimate authority. And because these are God's words, these are the words of life. Jesus says, you'll, you'll know the truth, my words, and the truth will do what? Set you free. His authority brings freedom. He says, my, my words are like light. I'm the light of life. Everyone who follows the light of life will have life. What does his words bring? What does his authority bring? Is flourishing. So those who live under the authority of God are not oppressed by it. By following the words of God, it brings two things, freedom and flourishing. That's what it is to live under the authority of God. By his word, he brought life. By his word, he brings healing. By his words, he brings Justice, by living under the words of God, is to bring true freedom, to experience real flourishing. That's the word of God. Now, I want us to find ourselves in this story more than maybe we have, because we're like, oh, that was a long time ago, and I don't really understand centurions, and yeah, well, they got to see Jesus. Did he? Did the man ever see Jesus? No, he didn't, did he? Go back to Luke. Luke chapter seven, verse two, he says, or sorry, verse three, when the centurion heard about Jesus, you see that? When the centurion heard about Jesus, he just hears the account of what Jesus has done. 
what Jesus has said. He is responding in the same way that we respond. He doesn't see Jesus. He hears the account of all that Jesus has said and done. He's in the same boat as we are. Is by faith, he heard of Jesus, recognizing Jesus as the authority and invited that authority into his life. We are the centurion. We don't see him. We hear of what he has done and we can respond the very same way the centurion does. Now, here's what's cool about faith. Does Jesus see the centurion? No. Check this out at, the, at verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And so it's like the centurion hears what Jesus is up to and deposits his faith in Jesus. Jesus then hears what has been spoken and deposits himself in the centurion's life. How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ. We get to respond the same way the centurion did. And it's such good news because oftentimes we think, well, oftentimes we think God's quote unquote inactivity in our life is because there's too great of a distance between us and him. He's too far away. What does this teach us? There's no distance. There's no, there's no problem with distance. The centurion is far from Jesus and deposits his faith. Jesus doesn't even come to his house and heals him. He can heal from a distance. So what is your greatest problem right now? Can Jesus be a help to that? No, he's too far. Now, this isn't a problem that he can solve. No, what does this story tell us? That Jesus has the authority over everything in our life. And there is no distance that keeps him from speaking a word into our life. That's wonderful news. That is wonderful news. And so what does this story of the centurion teach us? Is that the good news is truly for all people. There's no boundaries in which the gospel cannot cross to be received. It is for all people. That humility, recognizing our spiritual poverty is the prerequisite for faith. And true faith, true faith in Jesus is recognizing him as authority and wanting his authority in our life. And Jesus is able to bring it even from a great distance of where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Now with that in our mind, with that in our mind, we wanna to go to the communion table, to the place in which we remember that God drew near and brought forgiveness and grace to us to reconcile all people to himself. This is what Ephesians tells us. This is Ephesians chapter three. Think about how, how God has really brought in all of these stories through Luke to bring one family together. Chapter, sorry, Ephesians chapter two, verse 11 it says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That's who you were. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's how, we were, that's how we're brought into the family of God. It's through the blood of Christ. That's how the centurion saved. That's how I'm saved. 
That's how you're saved. That's how anybody gets saved. It's through the work of Jesus Christ. So if you're helping with communion, would you come forward now and take your seats?